you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Film Week here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross, and we are listening to the music from the soundtrack for The French Connection, released in 1971. It was directed by William Friedkin, who also brought us films like The Exorcist. He died this week at the age of 87. We'll talk about his legacy a little bit later, after Christy Lemire and Wade Major give us their take on this week's films, including The Last Voyage of Demeter, which tells the tale of a crew sailing from England carrying some very dangerous cargo. Guess who? We'll also hear about the sexy rom-com Red, White, and Royal Blue, and Jewels, about a small western Pennsylvania town where life is suddenly upended by the crash of a UFO and its alien passenger. That and my conversation with casting director John Papsidera, whose recent work includes the box office hit Oppenheimer, starring Killian Murphy and Emily Blunt. That's all ahead today on Film Week. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. It's Film Week here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in this week for Larry Mantle. Thanks so much for hanging with us on this Friday. We've got a lot of great films to talk about today, and we're going to talk about it with Christy Lemire, not only our LAS film critic, but also with RogerEbert.com and co-host of Breakfast All Day. We're also joined in studio by Wade Major, film critic for LAS and with Synagogues.com. Let's dive right in because we have a whole lot to get through today. We're going to start with The Last Voyage of Demeter. Christy, what did you think? They should have just called this vampire ship because it's a (laughs) ship with a vampire, right? Like space jail. It's just get to the point. Say what it is. Um, So this is based on part of Bram Stoker's Dracula, the captain's log section of Bram Stoker's Dracula about the ship that went from Romania to England and showed up and surprise, no one's on it because they've all been killed because Dracula is on board. He's sneaky, Dracula. He finds ways. Just get in places. You don't want him. So um, it's been kicking around for about 
20 years in development. And so you can kind of feel that. It feels a little creaky, no pun intended. Mm. Um, but it's uh, about how this crew set sail. There's all this cargo that's very mysterious. All these crates, like 50 wooden crates. And some of them have these like mysterious and kind of foreboding like seals on them with dragons. And what does that mean? Um, Corey Hawkins is among the crew. There's a bunch of and indistinguishable grungy crew members and one by one they all get picked off it's like alien Mm. on a boat um it is surprisingly tense here and there for a august horror movie um it's hard to see what's happening a lot of the time though which i was surprised to discover because the cinematographer is tom stern who shot a lot of clint eastwood movies over the past 20 years and i found it kind of inscrutable quite frequently because it's like on the ship at night or it's below deck at night and there's no real sense of perspective as far as what's Mm. happening where with whom to give you that great tension having said that i think that the kid in this woody norman is very good he was also the kid and come on, come on. It has its moments, but it's really screechy, and there are a lot of jump scares. Wade, what did you think? Yeah, I, I'm not fond of this movie. I mean, <laughs> high production value for the most part. Yes, it is. As Christy said, it when it's dark, it's sometimes a little too dark. Oh. I think that might be more to do with just the the DCPs that are distributed to theaters. Um, but you know, it's alien. I, I mean, it's it's a ship with a monster on it, and everybody's trapped on the ship with the monster. That's alien. And it just happens that instead of a spaceship, it's 1830, it's a sea ship, and the monster is Dracula. But beyond that, it doesn't really do anything that is novel or unexpected. And saying that it's based on the logs of the Demeter from Dracula is like saying it was based on like a couple of pages. You know, it's really, it's a very, very tenuous association with Dracula. What what I felt was promising, and I wish there had been more to it, there are two parts of the film that I, I felt like I wanted more of this. The ending is better than the actual movie, where it, where it suggests a sequel is actually really interesting. Um, I felt like that was the movie it needed to be. And then the character played by Corey Hawkins, I thought was a fascinating character. You know, he's the, he's the first black graduate of Cambridge Medical School, but he can't, because of his race, he can't get a proper position anywhere. So now he's, he's, ship, he's stuck on this ship. He's the doctor on this grungy ship. And that makes his character so fascinating, but they don't do anything with that other than one speech. And then it's back to, you know, Dracula killing people and, and, and all the usual tropes. So I felt like there's a there's a smarter, more intelligent movie that lives somewhere in this premise, and it it's still stuck there. And if you have a hard time with dogs being hurt and or oh. killed, um, yeah, they show you a lot of things I think they would have oh, done no. just fine in implying. Who? Dracula's a monster. He does bad stuff. We know that. We only just see all of it. Who wouldn't have a hard time right? with that? We're talking about <laughs> the last voyage of Demeter. Really quickly, Christy, I'm so curious. You called it creaky. Is that because it's been those 20 years? Maybe <laughs> audiences have shifted a little bit since then? Or what, what did you get from that? It just feels like bland, kind of uninspired late summer horror. Like, I'm not sure it's doing anything terribly novel. From 2003. It's been kicking around for a while. Yeah, it feels like something that should have been made 20 years ago. And and now it's here. It is The Last Voyage of Demeter. It is horror. It is in wide release, and it is rated R. Next up, we have Heart of Stone, which is an action crime thriller streaming now on Netflix. Wade, what did you think of Heart of Stone? It uh, it models itself on Mission Impossible. So, uh, but it's not quite. You know, Gal Gadot is the is the ostensible Tom Cruise figure here. So let's just call it Mission Very 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 Difficult. And <laughs> it um it it's an it's surreal how much the plot mirrors 
the new Mission Impossible. It's a, it's almost, you know, in that AI space, it's a very, very similar plot. But in many respects, it's actually smarter and more interesting. It has some very, very interesting twists to it, which I can't and, and shouldn't get into. But Gal Gadot is a super spy, and she's embedded with MI6, and there is this uh, very interesting mission that they have to accomplish to save the world, as we would expect. But what's, what's really fascinating about this is it's a Netflix film, and and if you want to understand why the actors are striking, this is a perfect mo- example. Oh, why? Man. Because there are there are great laughs and there are great crowd moments in this movie, but you don't enjoy them if you're watching it at home. If this were a theatrical release, you would have 500, 600, 800 people just ooing and eyeing and laughing and really just jazzing each other up watching this film. So it suffers by being on Netflix. And not only does the movie suffer by being on Netflix, but the residual structure by which all of these actors and all these participants would have enjoyed ongoing uh, income if it had been a theatrical release, that also disappears. Mm -hmm. So everyone is hurt by this being a Netflix film, except for Netflix. So, you know, this is a perfect example of the kind of thing, the kind of uh, sea change in the industry that that is is the reason behind the strikes. But that being said, yeah, it's really enjoyable. But, man, I really wanted to see it in a theater. I wish I could have seen this with a crowd. The movie is Heart of Stone. It is not in theaters. It is streaming on Netflix and it is rated PG-13. Next up, Red, White and Royal Blue. Christy. What did you think? I love this movie. It is so fun and so sexy and like everything that you want it to be. And I kind of wish it were in theaters, too, as Wade says. It's playing on Amazon. um, But it's based on this New York Times bestseller, Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. And it's about these two young men. It's the son of the U.S. president. He's played by Taylor Zakhar Perez. And it's the Prince of England played by Nicholas Galatine. And it's that, you know, classic romantic comedy, like they hate each other and they clash and they bicker at very fancy parties. But like, wouldn't you know, they're secretly attracted to each other. (laughs) But they can't be together because they're both not out. And they have these very public personas where there'd be repercussions if they were indeed out, or at least they perceive it to be that way. And so it's how they fall in love. And it's very hot. FYI, it's very sexy. They have crazy chemistry with each other, but also like it's way sexier than I think I would have expected as far as this kind of movie goes. Um, if you're watching Heartstopper and like that's kind of chased because they're high school kids, this is like, mm. anyway, it's really good. Um, but it's like <laughs> galas and polo matches and they're beautiful and they have great chemistry and they have to figure out who they are individually and who they are together. And I just found it totally charming and was smiling the whole way through. It is red, white, and royal blue. And Christy, it sounds like you really enjoyed it. <laughs> I've not read the book, Maybe but I hear sense. <laughs> no. But I hear people who like love the book are going to love this. I think, but they just have a lot of chemistry. And if you like pretty people falling in love with each other, this pretty is that. people and very sexy. So says Christy. <laughs> it is a romance and a comedy. It is streaming on Amazon Prime Video. If you want to spice up your weekend, and by the way, it is definitely rated R. Mm-hmm. This is Film Week. I'm Austin Cross in this week for Larry Mantle. I'm so glad that you're with us today. Next up is Jules Wade. What did you think of Jules? Uh, it's a kinder, gentler E.T. with old people instead of kids. Huh. Uh, and Ben Kingsley is the Elliot character. It, it Basically, Ben Kingsley is an old guy who's kind of slowly losing his faculties 
And isn't that a great time for flying saucer and an alien to crash land in his yard? And now, of course, when he mentions it to anybody, they think you're a crazy old guy. Shut up. You know, you can, it's a felony to call 911 and, and play pranks. So he just doesn't bother. And eventually, you know, joining his club uh, is J his friends Jane Curtin and Harriet Sansom Harris. They're the three old people who normally spend their time going to city council meetings and saying completely superfluous, useless things because they're old and they have nothing else to do. But now they've got a lot to do. It's exciting. But nobody else knows the alien is there except for the government. So, yeah, it follows the E.T. beats. It's very sweet. Uh, Mark Turtletop is a very successful producer of things like Little Miss Sunshine mm. um, and directed uh, Puzzle a couple of years ago, which is wonderful. He he's got a, he has a very gentle touch. He gets people and he gets humanity very well. Uh, gets it perfectly right. Harriet Sansom Harris has a line here, which I I had to pause the movie. I was laughing so hard, and it all I, I'm almost going to lose it right now. It's so funny. <laughs> so I will only say I just adore Harriet Sansom Harris. She was great on uh, Desperate Housewives. She's even better here, and she almost steals the film. What's the line? I'm so curious. I didn't know. I, I, I want to know. I, I, I can't. I'm not going to. I'm <laughs> not, not going to let you it. know. It's but it's you, you, you'll know it when it comes. Okay. It's it's terribly funny. She was also great in Licorice Pizza in one oh. scene as the agent in Licorice Pizza. Right. She's so great. Um, Yeah, I liked this, too. And it could have been quirky, cloying indie. Like, look at the adorable old people and their alien. It's so sweet and, and quirky. But there is a, a gentle, authentic humanity, much of which comes from Ben Kingsley, um, mm. just taking this totally seriously and bringing a lot of pathos to the story of this widower who is obviously lonely and is, you know, in the beginnings of dementia. I thought the the, the beats that they hit with the repetition of the city council meetings kind of establish what this place is like and what these friendships are like. Jane Curtin is also very funny here. And the three of them all have a nice chemistry. Jade Kwan, I thought, was good as the alien, right? Because yeah. it's, it's a wordless role, and she has to convey quite a bit just through the slightest gestures. And there's quite a poignant thing that happens toward yep. the end that is an echo of something we see at the beginning yep. that I thought was yep. unexpectedly emotional, I thought. I One agree. gesture. Yeah. I mean, this lion, whatever this lion right? is, the weight is cracking up over here. I, I don't I know if you am. can hear him snickering. It's, it's so funny. You got to tell me after. It's enough to have me curious. <laughs> right. uh, that is Jules. It is a sci-fi drama. It is in select theaters, and it is rated PG-13, and it has Wade Major laughing uh, <laughs> all the way through this conversation right now. Next up, we have Between Two Worlds. Christy, why don't you start us off? This is very good. This is Julia Pinoche, and she plays an established, acclaimed author who goes undercover as a cleaning woman to explore and shine a light on the plight of the working class and the working poor and just what it takes to put together even the barest, simplest of lives for these people and their families. And she goes off the grid entirely, gets a little apartment, and like you see her scrubbing toilets and mopping floors. And and it's very understated. There's almost a documentary quality to the way that it's shot and edited. And, you know, she is, of course, radiantly, radiantly lovely at all times, even with no makeup on, with, you know, her hair all messy, scrubbing toilets. But there's this underlying percolating tension because she has created what feel like really authentic friendships with these people that she's working alongside, toiling alongside. They, of course, do not know who she is at all. She makes mm. up a different story for everyone. And so the question becomes, what's going to happen when... She is exposed, right? Will they understand that she's done it all to help them? 
or will they feel like their stories are being exploited and she's using them and the friendship was all fake. So I thought it was quite lovely and thought-provoking and an and enlightening slice of life. Wade, what did you think? Concur completely with all of that. The, the, <laughs> the French the French do a very good job with what, what I, I would term the workplace subgenre. There are a lot of films in France, because France has had this pesky unemployment problem for many, many decades, and so there's a subgenre of movies that deal with the you know what uh, what happens when you're stuck in a job that you don't like or when you're unemployed, and so this kind of belongs to that genre, exploring the 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 rigors and the pressures of a particular occupation that is at the the bottom end of the scale, and um, the friendship that she has with Hélène Lambert is amazing. Hélène Lambert holds her own opposite Juliette Binoche to an uh, uh, unbelievable degree, and she's a great actress too. But when you realize how hard Binoche is working to really, really give you this textured character, you have to uh, clap and applaud everybody else in this cast because they are all rising to her level. She brings everything up. Uh, there are a couple of things in the script that I, I kind of wish had not been quite so on the nose, quite not, you know, that they had maybe pulled back a little bit, been a little more vague. But otherwise, it's, it's very compelling and incredibly well done. They are basically all working on a ferry that goes from Cannes in the north of France to England. And, um, you you know, it's not the love boat. And you really do believe that you are immersed on this ship and in the most degrading of circumstances with people who are really the the, uh, the invisible working class. So I think I think it's a terrific film. And yet they bond because they have that thing together, right? Like there's, yeah. a, there's a joy that's unexpected yeah. that they find in each other. They do, <laughs> yeah. The film is Between Two Worlds. It is a foreign French drama. You can see it at the Limley Royal in West L.A. I'm Austin Cross. You're listening to Film Week. I'm in this week for Larry Mantle, and we're talking right now with Christy Lemire, RogerEver.com, and co-host of Breakfast All Day. We're also joined by Wade Major, film critic for LAist and with Synagods.com. We are back in 60 seconds. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com slash events. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. It's Film Week here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in this week for Larry Mantle. Thanks so much for being with us. We're joined in studio right now by Christy Lemire with RogerEbert.com, also Wade Major with Synagogues. We continue our conversation with Splice here, a projected odyssey. Wade, what did you think? Uh, This is a beautiful film, Tears of Joy and Tears of Sadness for me. It's... uh, so Rob Murphy is a uh, an Australian documentarian, also a, a, a veteran projectionist, and the loss of film in the era of digital, 
really, really is, is, is something that hurts him. So he made a film over a number of years that is a love letter to film, celluloid, the actual material that gave us the first century of, of cinema. And uh, he talk, he's Australian, so he talks to a lot of Australian projectionists and archivists. But he also comes uh, here to L.A. and talks to our own Leonard Malton and Dennis Bartok from the American Cinematheque and, uh, and Douglas Trumbull, veteran uh, special effects genius. And, and he puts together uh, wonderful clips and pieces of history and a lot of technology. And it, uh, it's, it's a valentine to a format that uh, I think a lot of people today just don't have a great deal of love for or appreciation for. I, you know, when I was in college, I worked at the National Theater in Westwood. I mm. carried those film cans. I spent time in the projection booth, you know, watching the projectionists. I, I, they had a show scan projector there, show scan. The Doug Trumbull technology is part of this story as well. He's interviewed about it. I've seen show scan. So I felt very connected to the story here. And, you know, I learned to edit on film when I was in school. That's all gone now. So there is really this understanding that digital is the way of the future, but film still is part of our DNA. It's the poetry of it. It's the it's the 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 quill and the ink part of of uh, of cinema's history. And there's a sadness that we may be losing a lot of it. But then it ends on a really really beautiful note with uh, with a screening of The Hateful Eight and Quentin Tarantino oh. in Australia in a theater where these. These, these diehard projectionists have put together a 70-millimeter projection system that is one of only three in all of Australia that's wow. that's authorized to screen The Hateful Eight. And Tarantino is moved, and they're moved. And you, you, you do feel like we have a future going forward where film will not be dominated. It'll be dominated by digital, but it will still have a place. It's not going to disappear forever. It will continue to, to be part of our heritage. So it's a, I just think it's a wonderful film. It's great that it's the Lemley, and I think people should run out and see it. It is Splice here, a projected odyssey. It is at the Limley and NoHo. It is from Australia, and it is unrated. Next up, it's Aporia. Christy, what do you think? This is a really cool, stripped-down, low-budget time travel movie that actually makes sense. It is not people traveling through time, but rather things to mm. change Events. So Judy Greer stars as a wife and mom. Um, this is one of a, a few dramatic roles she has done. And I really like when she shifts it up a little bit and, and does it. She's known mostly for comedy. She's grieving because her husband has been killed in a drunk driving accident. He's played by Eddie Gathegi, and we see him in flashbacks at first. She becomes friends with his best friend, played by the great Payman Mahdi, who starred in Asghar Fahadi's Separation. He's a great Iranian actor. And he had been a physicist back in his home country. And he's been tinkering with this very, like, slapped together, very rough-hewn machine that maybe is a time machine, but maybe they can just, like, put stuff in it and, like, program it to change things to happen in the past. Mm. And so she does that to try to get her husband back. And it's, it reminds me a lot of this great film that came out several years back called Primer, which is also a cool, low-key time travel movie that actually makes sense. And it's the repercussions of what happens when she tries to bring her husband back, tries to change that day that he was killed and bring him back. So maybe that works, but it affects something else. And then she's got to fix that. And then that messes something else up. And it's just a, it's, it explores ideas we see a lot in time travel movies as far as being careful what you wish for and the ripple effects of 
things that you do for yourself to make yourself happy, but maybe it affects others. Um, but everyone is very good in it, and I think it, it raises a lot of interesting questions, and it has sort of a, a lived-in L.A. feel. It's very, like, working-class, low-key L.A. We don't see very often, so I liked it. The film is Aporia. It is a sci-fi drama. You can see it at the Landmark Westwood Theater, and it is rated R. Next up, we have Walid. Wade, what did you think? So this is a Malaysian film uh, that is that operates kind of like The Sound of Freedom meets John Wick crossed oh. with Taken. Hmm. Um, it's about a heavyset guy played by Maget Sharazal. And uh, he's a he's a teacher. He doesn't look like he's particularly athletic. And he has this this relationship with a kid who winds up getting kidnapped uh, by child traffickers. And that's the wrong move for them because then he goes completely Liam Neeson on them. And uh, <laughs> that's just an excuse for a whole lot of really cool scenes with, you know, Silat fighting. Silat is kind of like Malaysian kickboxing. So... All these Southeast Asian industries are largely modeled uh, in terms of their martial arts films. They're largely modeled on Hong Kong. So that includes everything from the Tony Ja Ong Bak films in Thailand to The Raid from Indonesia. And uh, this is this is maybe a notch or two below those, but it's still enormously entertaining. If you like the genre, this is about a guy going to save a kid, taking out the bad guys and just, you know, whipping them to an unbelievably violent degree throughout. And it's a lot of fun. It's shot in a very interesting way in much of the time. A little bit, little bit of a deviation. has a kind of certain Malaysian flavor to the way the fights are, are choreographed. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was, uh, you know, it was, it was engaging, even though it's really low budget. Um, the acting's solid. The fighting is great. I had a lot of fun with it. The film is Walid. It is a foreign Malaysian action thriller. You can see it at the Limley and Glendale. I just love that being Liam Neeson or somebody going <laughs> full Liam Neeson is, is just a thing that can be done right now. I think that's so hilarious. Let's move to Medusa Deluxe. Christy, what did you think? This should have been so much more fun. This is about this is a murder mystery set at a British hairstyling competition. Which sounds like crazy fun right there. Like that premise should be just bizarre, but it's impressive technically. It is visually astounding. It is meant to look like all one take. And the director, Thomas Hardiman, writer director, his feature filmmaking debut, he's working with this longtime cinematographer, Robbie Ryan, who has shot everything from like Come On, Come On to The Favorite to American Honey, just a really wide range of stuff. Um, and so it's meant to look like all one take. It is. Big chunks of long single take stitched together quite seamlessly. And so it's very immersive in that way. It's very impressive in that way. Someone has been killed at this hairstyling competition. Huh. He's been scalped. One of the stylists has been scalped. Jeez. And so this puts us in the middle of all of that as the stylists and the models are reacting to it, gossiping about it. They're all stuck in their respective dressing rooms. And... It's long monologues. It's following characters down hallways and up and down mm. stairways with steady cam. It's very impressive in that way. Um, and very clever mirror avoidance, I thought, quite yeah. frequently. Because a lot of it takes place in dressing rooms and mm. bathrooms. And um, that's all really cool. There's one sequence toward the end, like a really spectacularly beautiful how they do that sequence where I had to rewind it a couple times and rewatch it just to be like dazzled by the choreography and the, the pacing of it all. But the actual story itself is rather boring. And the characters, there's mm. not a whole lot to them. And there's almost a studied kind of understatement to the tone of these characters and what they're talking about. They have maybe a trait or two, but there's not a whole lot to them. And I feel like the whole thing should have matched 
the wildness of this premise and of the ambition of the the technical approach to it. So, but the score was cool. I thought. I agree completely, and <laughs> and I no really I think that, that that sums it up far better than I was. I was struggling with how am I going to describe this thing because it's kind of a it really is an anachronism. Uh, it, it's kind of a throwback to a certain kind of grungy. Um, British independent film from those early uh, Stephen Frears days, Sammy and Rosie Get Laid, and, you know, that kind of thing. It feels like it came out of that era, but it has these modern sensibilities and it's kind of this this very Cockney working class uh, undertow to it, which which it makes it very parochial in some respects. So I, I feel like if you come from that part of London and from this world, you're going to love this movie. All of these rambling monologues and these these rapid-fire uh, dialogue exchanges, which are hard to understand sometimes because the accents, the working-class accents, are really, really thick. But, um, you know, the, the English love their murder mysteries. I mean, British television has been, you know, ground zero for murder mysteries for 40 years. So uh, this fits into that cultural milieu, I think, better than it will be embraced by American audiences. It is Medusa Deluxe. It is from the UK, and you can find it in select theaters. It is rated R. One more from you there, Wade. Billion Dollar Heist. Break it down for us. Yeah, Billion Dollar Heist is uh, is the dissection of this extraordinary banking heist, this digital banking heist that took place in Bangladesh, where they came in one morning and they found out mm. that nearly a billion dollars had been drained from the bank's uh, accounts. And the how and the why and the who of that is broken down by a group of um, cybernetic experts and journalists and others from all around the world, all the different people from all these different industries who were part of figuring this out. So you get their testimony plus some reenactment, which makes it a little clunky from a documentary standpoint as a craft uh, exercise. It's not the most innovative documentary. Hmm. But the story is terrifying because... That could be, and that's our money, you know. That's uh, if when you think about, oh, a billion dollars at a bank loss, those are deposits. That's somebody's money. So we all have our money in banks and, and in digital institutions. And they talk about how the internet was never designed for this level of security, it was designed for something else. And we're all kind of improvising at this point to mm. introduce the necessary levels of security, which are still lacking. So uh, what it reveals about the security of the global finance uh, system is, is pretty chilling, and it makes you want to go back to written checks. It's Billion Dollar Heist. It is a documentary. It is available on demand August 14th, and it is unrated. I think we have time for one more, Wade. So could we get your thoughts on Underdog? Yeah, Underdog, a sweet little documentary uh, about a, uh, a, a New England dairy farmer, a Vermont dairy farmer, who really wants to compete in a dog sled race uh, in Alaska, in Fairbanks, Alaska. It's kind of a, it's not the, the, the big one. It's, you know, kind of a sprint race. Uh, it's not the Iditarod. So, uh, but at the same time, he's he, he's at risk of losing his farm to, you know, a, uh, a bloated mortgage and all this other stuff. So it's uh, he's, a, he's an eccentric, interesting guy. You don't get too far beneath the surface with him, but he's charming. And uh, the story of this odd little guy trying to realize a dream while holding on to his farm really has kind of a, a Maisley's Brothers quality to it. You feel like a fly on the wall of a really a very true human story. So that's nice. That's Underdog. It is a documentary. You can see it at the Lindley Royal in West L.A. You can also see it at the Lindley Monica Film Center in Santa Monica, and it is unrated. With the time we have left today, I want to bring attention to some news from this week, and that's the death of William Friedkin, the acclaimed director of The French Connection and The Exorcist, who 
passed away at the age of 87. Uh, Christy, any thoughts uh, after his passing? A titan, right? Part of an era, and emblematic of that great 70s New Hollywood and uh, between The Exorcist and The French Connection made movies that are just great examples of the genre and how the genre changed afterward, right? Like mm. everything coming after The Exorcist tried to be The Exorcist. And I think action films changed after The French Connection given his like visceral, muscular kind of documentary style um, of shooting because he had come from a documentary background. A big personality, did not suffer fools. If you've seen him <laughs> interviewed, it could be a hoot. Um, I appreciate that later on he went on to do several play adaptations. He did Tracy Letts's Bug and Killer Joe. Um, but, but no matter what genre he worked in, there was an intensity and a spark and an unpredictable kind of danger to them that was very exciting. Wade, what do you think? Yeah, I, all of that and more. He, you know, Friedkin. Friedkin was was part of that class of '70s filmmakers who pioneered everything and changed everything. And and many of them kind of found themselves lost when everything pivoted again in the '80s. But he pivoted too. To Live and Die in L.A. is an unbelievably underrated film, generally, but also as part of his body of work. Uh, you know, it has, I mean, it has a plot twist that nobody would have dared even try, much less be able to pull off. Um, it's legendary for that. And then, of course, the, you know, driving the wrong way on the freeway scene, which is not CGI, um, it rivals the chase in, uh, in the French Connection. So he was, uh, he was an ace, and he pushed the envelope right to, to the very end, his whole career. Um, again, did not suffer fools. He could be very tough to work with. He could be tough on actors. He was certainly tough on the press, but he made great movies. Talking about William Friedkin, the acclaimed director of many films that passed away this week at the age of 87. Wade Christie, before we let you go, if people just had time for one film this weekend, which one would you recommend? And maybe a little bit of wine. Red, white, and royal blue. Sit at home and have a comforting experience on the couch. Comforting and sexy. <laughs> Can't forget that Exciting. one. Exciting. Would, I would say Between Two Worlds because Juliette Binoche can do no wrong. It is Film Week here on LAist. I'm Austin Cross in this week for Larry Mantle. Thanks so much for joining us. It is so nice to have you here and it's always such an honor to fill in for Larry. Coming up, I will have my conversation with John Papsidera, who is the casting director for Oppenheimer. Such a fascinating guy. Going to hear from him just ahead. Stick around. It's Film Week here on LAist 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in this week for Larry Mantle. Lots of good news for Christopher Nolan's epic Oppenheimer this week. The first headline that the film has now done more than $550 million in ticket sales. And the next is that Oppenheimer will continue its run in IMAX past August 17th when it was initially slated to leave. In select theaters, you can watch Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, and the rest in 70 millimeters through August 31st. There are quite a few household names in the film, with each performer bringing a unique interpretation to their role. Long before we got to enjoy them on the silver screen, though, my next guest was tasked with deciding who made the cut. John Papsidera was the casting director for Oppenheimer and joins me now. His other credits include The Dark Knight and TV shows like Westworld and Yellowstone. John, thanks so much for coming on. 
Thank you for having me. Pleasure. I should actually mention that we had director Christopher Nolan on Film Week just a couple weeks ago. And so I wanted to start there with how you came to work with Christopher Nolan on this film. It was a stroke of luck, honestly. Um, I owe it to producers Suzanne and Jennifer Todd, who I had done my first film on my own uh, with Austin Powers, the original Austin Powers. Uh, we worked together and Shortly after that, they called me and said, um, hey, we have this small movie. It's called Memento. Would you have any interest in uh, reading it and working on it? Uh, and I said, of course. And I did. And that's how I met Chris. And um, we've worked together ever since. And of course, because the film is about the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer, you know that the film rides on the main actor. I'm wondering about the specific qualities you were looking for in an Oppenheimer, what kind of research you did, how you determined what those qualities would be, and and how you decided on Killian Murphy for the main role. Yeah, um, you know, it's uh, it's always a, an interesting process. I will read the script, and then Chris and I will sit and talk uh, about characters and about leads and and all kinds of things afterwards, the script itself. And he had a strong indication that uh, early on that he um, had been staring at the cover of the book um, uh, that he uh, that he adapted the screenplay from and thought it looks like Killian. So he said to me, what do you think of that? And I said, well, look, I mean, Killian's got the intelligence. He's got, you know, the emotions. He's got enough charisma and a hypnotizing, you know, uh, face that we would certainly stare and enjoy watching that performance. And, um, and you know, we had known and worked with Killian for a lot of years since uh, Batman Begins uh, when he uh, tested for uh, Batman. And ultimately we cast him as the Scarecrow, but, you know, he's been a big part of all the films. And um, I was thrilled that it was an opportunity to use Killian in a major role and put him front and center. Um, uh, so, uh, it was an easy, you know, conversation and we both agreed he'd be brilliant. And what was it that you were hoping that he would bring to that? You read the script and you got a yeah. sense of who J. Robert Oppenheimer was. What were the things that stood out to you that you thought, man, well, whoever plays this guy needs to be this. And they also need to show us a little bit of that. Cause I'm feeling where they're conflicted here. He's conflicted there. Yeah. Talk to me about some of that. Well, conf conflict is a is a really appropriate term, you know, um, because not only is he, an, you know, a genius and uh, and was regarded as such in his day, but he was also a bit of a rock star. He was a bit of a, you know, bon vivant. He was a guy that was known for style and for his, you know, brain. And, you know, I was um, not only knowing Killian over the years and seeing his work in our films, but also a huge Peaky Blinders fan. Right. Um, you know, Killian can be absolutely mesmerizing um, uh, of an actor to watch. And, um, and I thought that, you know, not only did he bring the intelligence uh, to, the, to the role, but he brought this conflict. He brought this ability to play, to play conflicting thoughts, conflict, conflicting emotions in a character. Um, and and that's what you want to watch, you know, characters go through. It's certainly front and center in this film. And I find it, you know, um, uh, an essential part 
of a lead and a character. You have to want to watch them go through this process. And Killian has an, a, an incredible ability to play emotion and intelligence and, um, and, and a range of emotions uh, all at the same time. And, um, and so, uh, again, I thought uh, it was such an opportunity to spotlight him in a role that was worthy of him uh, and his talent. Um, and so those are all the things that we kind of looked at and talked about. Uh, but, you know, knowing Killian so well, like I said, it was an easy yes for both of us. You know, and I'll say that I got into Peaky Blinders almost a decade ago, and that's where I knew yeah. him from. So the second that I heard that he was going to be the lead in this, I thought, ah, perfect, because I'm a history guy. So I knew about this story. But then I also sure. know about him as an actor and his ability to say so much, even when he's not saying anything. Yeah. But even with the whisper, it can cause yeah. you just to focus in on what he's saying. You're like, what, what, what's about to come next? So yeah, hey, excellent choice. Killian's not a guy that uses a lot of tricks. You know, I mean, I don't know if Chris talked about it at all. Um, he's not an actor that re that relies on tricks. He's a very truthful, immersive actor. And um, and I thought, you know, that's a little bit what Oppenheimer was. He was immersed in this world. He, you know, he was singularly focused on it and his love life. But um, uh, but that's something that Killian does really, really well. And um, and so, yeah, uh, I think it was a great choice as well. And I'm thrilled that uh, that he's had this opportunity to step into the spotlight in this way. It's Film Week right here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in this week for Larry Mantle, and I'm talking with casting director John Papsidera, who brought us the casting for Oppenheimer, as well as films like Dark Knight and Interstellar, uh, Inception. Uh, let me ask you about uh, the characters themselves, because there are a lot of characters to keep track of. And, of course, what yeah. helped was having such a wide slate of household names attached to them. Yeah. And it had this effect for me of making the film feel a bit grandiose. Was that the intention? <laughs> uh, I think there was two intentions, you know, and, and we discussed this early on as well, that... Um, First and foremost, I think the idea that we were casting people that had major, you know, contributions to such an important time in history and to the Manhattan Project, that we wanted people with the same kind of presence in modern day, you know, cinema kind of vocabulary to inhabit the film to out of respect for those real people. Um, whether or not it was one line or 50 lines, we felt like it was important to do to pay tribute to those um, scientists and make them seen, since so many of them in history are not seen and not talked about the way Oppenheimer was. And so, you know, the collection of souls that you put together added to the, the depth of those characters and in our own way, out of respect gave them a bigger life than necessarily just the lines in the script did. So that was first and foremost. I think the other thing was Chris was aware, look, I'm making a, a script that is 180 pages about a scientist and um, and we're competing with Marvel movies. You know, well, we competed with Barbie, but uh, <laughs> the concept was, you know, we do need to stack the deck a bit to give people a driving, you know, 
interest in the film and help us um, uh, conquer that on a on a business level as well. So it was kind of twofold, but really first and foremost, it was about you know giving due respect to those people that you know have changed the world. Such an interesting approach. And and when I saw all those stars on the screen, my first thought was, how do you juggle so much talent? Because you have so many people who are used to being center stage, yeah. maybe even getting paid like they're the star. Yeah except they're just a part of this one man story. How did you find that balance? That was the toughest thing, you know, convincing. Cause usually, you know, I, I like to kid Chris. And when we first sit down, I'll say, okay, it's good to be King. Who, who do you want? And, um, and then we will talk about who's right for the film or not. In this case, I think the reality was, um, you know, we knew we were going to try and do that as much as possible without pulling you out of the film. And so the the selection of those actors was really important that they that they weren't showy, that they wouldn't pull you out of the story, but gave you enough insight to not only remem remember them, but also, you know, to give you a little something to keep people separate, to follow the storyline in a certain way. So, but I have to say, other than um, uh, this more than any other movie we've worked on together, um, that was the most difficult part was, um, you know, making deals with actors that are used to being first and second and third on the call sheet uh, and in billing and in pay, you know, uh, salary and all those things, convincing them and structuring deals that actually, you know, got them in the film was the most challenging thing for me. Not create, you know, creatively, I could think of, you know, tons of brilliant actors that should be part of this. And certainly them being able to talk about, you know, to portray intelligence, to portray, you know, nationalities. And, and you know, we looked all the world over. If they were Hungarian, we were looking for Hungarian actors. So um, a lot of those things were challenges, but really the deal-making was the hardest part of it. And um, and I can't thank those actors enough for seeing, you know, being willing to be part of a whole, which is really what, you know, any of us are doing. We're signing on to tell a story and um, an ego gets in the way a lot. And um, and I really commend all the actors involved for putting that aside and going on this journey with Chris and all of us to tell this, I think, very important story. You're listening to Film Week here on LAST 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in this week for Larry Mantle. My guest this hour is John Papsidera, who's the casting director for many memorable films, including Oppenheimer, which has just been a smash at the box office. Recent news showed that over $550 million in ticket sales. We will continue our conversation with John when we come back in 60 seconds. I'm LAist reporter Caitlin Hernandez. The journalists of LAist work for you. Living in Southern California is complicated. The LAPD was just, they, they were merciless. My job is to explain it. Before the 1970s, there were a lot of public bathrooms and urinals in California to answer your basic questions and help you make sense of the big issues we're facing, discover community, and get the help you need. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism.
It's Film Week here on LAST 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in this week for Larry Mantle. My guest this hour is John Papsidera, casting director for the film Oppenheimer. And I want to ask you about Matt Damon, who played Lieutenant General Leslie Groves, the director of the Manhattan Project who appointed Oppenheimer. And what was really interesting to me as a Matt Damon fan, among other things, is the release of Oppenheimer came almost 25 years to the day after another big Matt Damon film that was Saving Private Ryan, in which he was an army private. And so in one sense, it was interesting to see him back in uniform in the same war decades later. But I'm wondering, when it comes to choosing an actor for a film, how much do you consider say, their past work and maybe their evolution as an actor over the years? Because he's gone from private now to 25 years later, Lieutenant General. How much do you consider their evolution as an actor? It is interesting. Whether you consider it yourself or not, it's usually brought to the table. Whether, you know, you think down the line, well, might they not want to play this role because they've done it before or they did it recently or, um, you know, a myriad of other things that might come back as answers from their agents and their and their team. So when we talked about Matt, you know, yes, we all love to see Matt in a uniform. And, you know, I think the other thing that uh, that occurred to us is that, you know, he is a grown man now, which is very different than what he was in Saving Private Ryan. Right. And, you know, Matt also brought with him a casual confidence that uh that we thought and we felt that uh that he had in the in the character and also the fact that he has humor you know there are moments in the script and it's what i love so much about what matt did with it was he'd find those those small comments he'd find an offhanded comment to then you know give groves that then was a chuckle and um, mm. there's not a lot of opportunities for that in the script. And so we wanted somebody to be able to handle comedy as well as the gravitas of somebody that had served and um, and somebody that felt lived in. And, you know, I think there's that also Matt possesses that. We watched him grow up on a screen. So, you know, even though he might not have the same number of years under his belt, we feel like he's this, you know, senior statesman in some ways. So a lot of those things lined up and, you know, Matt and Chris had wanted to work together uh, ever since Interstellar again. Um, and so we were thrilled that, you know, we thought Groves was a great role for him to fit into. Talking right now with John Papsidera, casting director for Oppenheimer. Looking big picture, John, Hollywood actors are currently on strike and a major issue is the role of AI in film. And it's already mm. been used in some limited ways, but that technology is improving. As a person whose job it is to choose the right talent, the right elements for a film, what do you think about the advent of AI? You know, for me, um, what I, why I love what I do so much is that, you know, I'm trying to match people's souls to something that is two-dimensional on a page. I read it and then I go through this process of thinking who has aspects in their personalities, in their souls, in their being that align with this character or can shed light on this character. And, you know, AI would do away with that on a lot, is my understanding. I mean, you know, it's solely created uh, by computers and, um, 
and formulate it. So while you could get it to do anything, I think the um, you know the the process and the experience of watching a film, of watching any art in that way, is to be moved. And I think that you know if you take the human emotion out of it, if you take the mm. idea that I am you watching you on a screen, but I relate to you, um, then you're you're really toying with the whole idea of art. Um, of cinema, of film, all of it. Then it just becomes a computer game. Um, and um, and so I have a lot of concerns about it. And, uh, and I stand with the actors that AI is a huge, important issue that needs to be solved and have a, uh, have a cohesive understanding of what it is and how it's to be used or not used in you know, going forward. I mean, technology comes on us in so many different ways. Sometimes it surprises us yeah. what we're able to do. And then sometimes, you know, it just happens so gradually. Maybe it's a new iPhone or something like that, that you're not noticing the leaps and bounds that technology is making. But I would imagine we might not be far from the point where maybe even non-living actors could be portrayed in films, uh, maybe their image or something like that. Do you think that uh, casting would ever include maybe an actor who's died and then I guess the the question about that is, would you ever consider working on a, a film or maybe you have to make a decision between a living actor and a, an actor who's maybe passed on? Yeah. Again, it feels like a little bit like a machine stealing from a from a human being. You know, um, uh, I I would have a lot of hesitancy in doing a film that, you know, used AI to bring back somebody from the dead. Um, and I do think there's something, you know, whether it's theater, um, whether it's visual arts, whether it's cinema, there's something about humans relating to humans about the human experience that will get lost. Um, it can be replicated, it can be mimicked, but it's not the whole complex ball of wax that, um, that I think we deal with, uh, you know, today and experience as art. That's John Papsidera, casting director for Oppenheimer. You can hear more from John on the Academy Museum podcast from LAS Studios. A new episode dropped this week. John will tell us about his work casting Batman. You can hear that and re-listen to Film Week wherever you get your podcasts. John, thanks so much for making the time. Thank you so much, Austin. Appreciate it. This is Film Week on LAS 89.3. Thanks so much for being with us. 